There you go. <laughs> um, so, it, but it's, it's great to have you here. We started the day thinking in a kind of a, the theme of how the cross of Jesus, which is the theme of the whole conference, how the cross of Jesus shows us what God is like, shows us what God is up to, show, is, is the climax and the centre of God's plans and purposes. So it was a topical sermon with Hebrews chapter 1 as the, um, the verse that we really focus on, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4. From this point on, we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel. So we're not jumping around quite so much, but focusing on Mark's Gospel, um, but in big sections. We're going to hit all of Mark's Gospel, not read every single verse, but all of Mark's Gospel across the evenings, as well as a couple of the daytime sessions. So if you can only come for the evenings, you'll get the first four chapters of Mark tonight in overview, and if you can join us Tomorrow night, you'll get the, a really important middle three sort of turning point chapters in Mark 8, 9 and 10. And then you'll also catch as Jesus comes into um, Jerusalem and that final week before his crucifixion. And then in the, the mornings, we'll also look tomorrow at Mark 5, 6, 7 and 8. And on the final day, we'll look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So, so we're going to cover all of Mark's Gospel. It is a, it's, it's the shortest of the Gospels. It's a quick read and is something, if, again, if you aren't used to reading much of the Bible, Mark is a great way to get familiar with the Gospel story by reading it as a whole and even reading it several times. And I hope as we do these sermons, you'll begin to get familiar with the shape of it, the structure of it, the way it kind of hangs together. You know how sometimes you read something for the first time, you're too busy keeping up to get the hang of it, but as you go back again, you're starting to notice repeated themes and shape and structure and emphasis. Hopefully I can help point out some of that to you and that could be something you return to. It's great for you if you are a Christian because you get to spend time with Jesus, walking, talking, relating, interacting, teaching, challenging, um, praying, all sorts of things. So it's, it's great for that reason. It's also great because one of the simplest ways kind of to be able to share your faith when someone shows a lot of interest, so maybe not that initial conversation, but if someone really begins to show quite a bit of interest, one of the simple things you can do is to say to somebody, hey, would you like to read you know, one of the Bible accounts of Jesus' life, one of the stories, of Je- biographies of Jesus, the, the, the biblical gospels? And Mark's a good one again because it's short. Um, and it could be something you read with somebody, you do a book club, or you could read separately and then discuss together. You could even do it like a book club and have some wines, just not too many. Um, <laughs> some non-alcoholic wines, some grape juice. Um, like a real book club, right? You know, and, you could, um, uh, and, and it becomes a way to discuss, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of how he acts? Uh, what's surprising? What's unusual? What's interesting, intriguing? It's a really excellent way. And it means that you're no longer talking just about religion, or about uh, Christian ideas that pop up, opinions, Christian opinions that pop up in the news and in the media, but you can instead talk about the primary source, one of the original documents about Jesus and his life and his teaching. You know, you've got all these opinions about God and Christianity. Have you ever read the Bible? And surprisingly, a lot of people haven't. I mean, they say, yeah, yeah, of course I have. It's all, have you really? Yeah, not actually at all. You know, and, <laughs> um, and you get to actually say, well, why not? Why not have a look at it for yourself? And let's discuss it. Oh, I grew up in the church. I know all about Have you ever read it as an adult? Or have you ever, only ever read the Bible as a Sunday school kid or a choir boy? Have you ever read the gospel as an adult? Hey, why don't we do it? Yeah, so it's good in that way too. It prepares you to feel confident to do one of the basic, most simplest forms of an evangelistic conversational course. You know, one of the most ancient forms, reading a gospel. 
And as we look at this, at Mark's Gospel, we'll realise that um, the Gospels, they're a strange kind of biography. They're a biography that really is a death narrative with a really long introduction. <laughs> there, are, there are very few biographies like that. Most biographies have a long time about their parents, perhaps in the context they grew up in, their childhood, their formative years, their early successes and failures, um, the, uh, the, the, the key marks of their career, their twilight years and so on. Um, and then eventually their death at the very end, perhaps, and their famous last words. Apparently Oscar Wilde, the famous playwright's famous last words on his deathbed were, either those curtains or I am going to have to go. <laughs> Something like that. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it's at the very end. Whereas the Gospel, as we'll see, actually from, from um, Luke ch- uh, so Mark chapter 8 onwards, he begins talking over and over again about his death very explicitly. Chapter 11, we begin the last week uh, of his life on earth, and then the final very long chapters, the, uh, four, uh, 15, 16, are all about that account of his death and resurrection. So, the Gospels are, in many ways, cross-narratives. They're cross-of-Christ narratives, just with very long introductions. <laughs> um, and, and as you read and reread them, you begin to notice the hints and the ironies and the foreshadowings and the preparations for the cross all the way along as well. So then, let's have a look at Mark chapter 1 to 4. Um, and uh, one of the big themes through here is the secret of the kingdom of God. I'll pray for us and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you speak to us in your word, that we can hear you, your mind, your uh, will and your purposes for us and for the world. Help me speak truly and clearly and well. Help us hear humbly um, and uh, repentantly. Help us hear well. Please make us wise for salvation Please prepare us thoroughly for every good work. In the name of Jesus, we pray by the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are some um, detective stories, mystery stories, that begin with a dead body, a scream maybe, as it's discovered, but no one knows who the killer is, not even the audience. And so we, together with uh, everybody Um, in the crime scene, and the detective who comes in, usually with a funny accent, um, we go on the journey of trying to figure out. We have our own theories that we form about who it is. There are other detective stories and mysteries where we see what happens at the beginning. We know who the killer is, and we get the delight of watching how it is that everyone else figures it out, and if we've watched a few of these kinds of stories, we also get the thrill of the twist that why the killer did it may not be what it seems. (laughs) And so we go, oh, well, they did it because they're bad. Whoa, maybe they're not so bad after all. Everything is different and half the people are dead maybe. And, you know, all these (laughs) ghosts and a split personality. And they're all different than what we thought. Uh, And and as you get that to see that unfold, you're getting to know how and why um, uh, as the story goes along. Now, Mark's Gospel um, is a kind of who-is-it story, not a who-done-it, but a who-is-it. But it is that second type where we as the audience, from the very first verse, know (laughs) who-is-it. 
we know uh, the, the answer to the story. That then the next eight chapters, especially, everyone else is asking, Who is this Jesus? Who in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus even says to his disciples, Who do you say, who do people say I am? And they go, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others say you're one of the prophets. And, uh, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You know, we get right up to halfway through the book. Um, this climactic point, who, do you, who am I, who am I? The, the demons have their opinions, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have their opinions, the crowds have their opinions, the, the sinners and the tax collectors have their opinions. Who is he, who is he? But we know from the beginning, so we're there smugly sitting in our beanbag um, with our non-alcoholic wine <laughs> and we know one verse one, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus God's King. And what we're reading for is to find out what kind of king is he? What kind of good news does he bring? What is this announcement? Is it just that Jesus is the king or is it the kind of kingdom he'll bring? So that's, that's what we're, we're thinking about. Who is Jesus? Well, that's heading number one. Who is Jesus? First thing Mark tells us is Jesus is the long-promised, long-prophesied, long-awaited Messiah the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's written in Isaiah, the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, in verses 9 to 11, a divine commissioning comes in words of Old Testament scripture in Jesus' baptism. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptised by John in the Jordan, and as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, with you, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then in verses 14 to 15, he announces the time has now come, the time of the kingdom becoming near. Because, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. History of the world is coming to a head. The plans of God are reaching their goal. Life has a meaning and a purpose and History has a direction and a goal and that is in relationship to this kingship of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah of God, the Spirit-anointed one, the one who was promised, that for whom the way was being prepared, the one with whom God is pleased, the one who brings the kingdom of God near. Jesus is God's king. But what kind of king is he? What kind of Messiah, to use that Old Testament a Hebrew word for God's king. What kind of Messiah will Jesus be? Yeah, okay, who is it? It's Jesus. But what is it? How is it? What kind of is it? This Jesus. We'll have to keep watching, keep reading to find this out. What's the good news he's announcing? What's the kingdom that he's bringing? Well, under this first heading of who is Jesus, he is the one who brings the way of repentance and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to zero in on that first quote from Malachi, the one who brings uh, the way of repentance and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I said Malachi, didn't I? Mark doesn't say Malachi. Mark says Isaiah. Because actually what we have here is two quotes kind of superheated up and melded together <laughs> from Isaiah 
and Malachi, two quotes with a similar theme. Because just as in the, um, uh, you have Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfilment, you also have Old Testament promise, later Old Testament fulfilment or building on that promise to New Testament fulfilment. That there can be, a, even within the Old Testament itself, a building up of promises, keeping up together. And so Mark has read his Bible. <laughs> I mean, if you're reading Mark for the first time, you just take his word for it and go, sure, it's Isaiah, whatever, what do I know? <laughs> um, but as you're reading a little closer, maybe looking at the footnote letters and you look down and you go, oh, hang on a second, Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Mal 3 verse 1. Hmm, hmm, you think. And, and so that, then you look at Isaiah 40. You might, if you can get there quick enough on your phone or paper Bible, come back with me, it's at a turning point in Isaiah from judgment to salvation and Isaiah is looking ahead for a rescue for God's people from Babylon by the rivers of Babylon. They've hung up their harps. They're no longer singing of Jerusalem. They're mourning and longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. And then we get this word of comfort, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She's received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And here's this voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Prepare. It's like envisioning this messenger who in the wilderness between Babylon and, and the homeland of Jerusalem um, major miraculous civil ro- civic roadworks will take place and, and the, the ground will be made flat so God's people can march out of Babylon back home um, and march with the glory of God himself, the Lord, and with a glory and a triumph and a joy so bright that actually it becomes a, a huge train, huge caravan of people from all the nations flooding up as Isaiah had prophesied earlier. Let's go up to Jerusalem. Let's walk in the light of the law of the Lord. Let's beat our weapons into farming implements because God is good and his time of peace has come. That's what Mark is saying is getting fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. The time of forgiveness for God's people under judgment, the time of forgiveness for the whole world, for peace to come to the whole world. Prepare that way. Ah, Mark says, but have you read Malachi? (laughs) Because, ah, Malachi says it's not quite as simple as Isaiah might lead you to believe. Because it's not just, what we need is not just roadworks. It's not just the valleys that are the problem. It's not just the hills that are the issue. It's the heart of the people that needs work, that needs preparation. And so picking up on this preparing the way for the coming of God, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, speaks about this messenger who will come, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He'll burn up, he'll judge, he'll cleanse, he will purge. Verse 3, he'll sit like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who'll bring offerings in righteousness and uh, the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable in that day. 
So, verse 5, I'll come near for you for judgment and I'll be quick to testify against your sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and those who defraud their labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the aliens of justice, meaning foreigners, not meaning outer space. Do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. He picks up the theme in chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It'll burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, the evildoers will be like stubble. The day is coming. We'll set them on fire, says the Lord. This burning, this judgment coming. So remember, verse 4, 4 verse 4, the law of my servant Moses, the decrees I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And see, I'm sending my prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or come and strike the land with a curse. A messenger is coming to prepare. He's even an Elijah figure. Just like Elijah rebuked Israel, called them back to Moses and his ways. One calling on them to repent, to turn back, to get ready because it's not just about valleys and hills and highways. You need to get your heart right before God. And Mark is then saying... That prophecy in Isaiah that Malachi took up and, and moulded for, uh, with more clarity to say when that preparing comes, when that voice of preparing, that Elijah voice comes in the wilderness, he won't just be saying, let's get to work on the road. He'll be saying, let's get to work on repentance. Yeah. And so here's John, Mark chapter 1, dressed the way Elijah used to dress, you can go back and read about that in the stories of Elijah in the books of Kings, dressed in the camel's hair, eating the rugged, rustic, um, uh, poor food of the prophet and preaching repentance, preaching of judgment, preaching of the need to get ready, not with building highways, but repentance and baptism. What kind of king is Jesus then who's coming? He's the one who'll come and bring repentance, bring the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes to those who do repent. For John said, After me, verse 7, will come one more powerful than I, the thongs or straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you just with water. It's just a symbol with water. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. This is the way that Jesus will bring, that John is preparing, not a geographical way, not a highway, not a red carpet reception, but confession and repentance, renewal and rebirth, God transforming your life from the inside out, forgiving your sin and making you new. The gift of the Spirit of God himself coming to live with his people. That's the good news that this Jesus King is going to come and bring. This is the the good news about Jesus the King who'll bring transformation, repentance, forgiveness, new life, God living with his people. That's the king we're talking about. God coming to us to fulfil all these prophecies, calling us to turn back to him, to receive new life and fellowship with him. What kind of king is this Jesus? He is the king. He is the king who brings this way of repentance and the Holy Spirit. He is the king who is the son and the servant that's the next bit, the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 to 11. Jesus comes to John, is baptised in the ceremony, even though he has no sins to be forgiven. And as he comes out of the water, a voice comes from heaven. You are my son whom I love. 
With you I am well pleased. And God descends on him. God the Spirit descends on him. You're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the one promised by Malachi and Isaiah who's prepared for by John the Baptist, the one who God the Father anoints and declares and commissions to be his son. He's anointed with the Spirit. It's a cool Trinitarian moment, this one. You might have had a Mormon missionary knock on your door possibly at some time or be stopped in the street by a Mormon missionary, the Latter-day Saints, um, with their little elder badges. And one of the things, if you get into a long conversation with them, they like to point to is this passage. And they say, this shows the Trinity can't be true because where's God? Is God in the dove? Is God in the heaven saying, you are my son? Or is God coming out of the water being called my son? Where's God? The dove? The heavens? The water? And they, they, they splitting in that way, splitting apart God, saying there's three gods there. There's Father God, there's Jesus, and there's the Spirit. You find a similar thing if you talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll similarly say, you know, there's, there's only one God, Jehovah. Yeah? What they fail to see is actually, where is God? God is in the baptism of Jesus. That's where God is. God is as Father announcing to Son receiving by Spirit anointing, I've come to save the world. It is a Trinitarian moment, this one. Of It's not three separate acts. The Father saying, you are my Son, and the Son saying, uh-uh, no thank you, I want to go and get a cheeseburger, and the Spirit saying <laughs> something else entirely. All in one act, God is at work. He's showing himself, he's taken on human flesh, there's a voice from heaven and a manifestation of a dove, but one God is at work. Just as we talked about this morning in creation, God the speaker speaks his divine word by his divine breath, speaker, word and breath, one God. So here, one God, Father commissioning, Son sent, Spirit anointing. It's a moment where God as Trinity is engaged in our salvation. And in the words that God speaks, uh, we learn two extra things about Jesus. We learn two extra things about Jesus. Um, first, we learn that he is, again, we learn he is the Messiah. Secondly, we learn he is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. We already heard that in 1 verse 1. Jesus, Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's, he's the Messiah, and God says to the Messiah in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've become your father. That's the Psalm of David, second Psalm in the book of Psalms. God says to his king, his Messiah, uh, David and your sons, you are the sons of God. I am your father, you are my adopted son, my representative, my kings of my kingdom. Jesus is the son of God. In this, Jesus, God the son, <laughs> has now become the son of God, the Messiah, but he's also the servant of the Lord. Hidden in the way this little quote comes to us, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, brings to mind the way God speaks to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Isaiah is already in the air from earlier on in the book, Mark's Gospel. But uh, here, Isaiah 42, here is my chosen one in whom I delight. Uh, in whom I take my pleasure. He will be a light to the nations and a covenant for the Gentiles. My servant who is weary and burdened and many turn away their face. 
that although we like sheep have gone astray and turned each one to his own way, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, the one who came to suffer and to die, although he was pure, although he was perfect, who was despised and rejected and suffered, that we might be forgiven. Here is my king, my Messiah. Here is my servant, the suffering one. In other words, get ready for the cross. The baptism word is saying, Mark's gospel is saying, he is anointed with the Spirit, declared to be the Messiah, the pleasing servant of the Lord, the coming Lord God of Malachi 3, the victorious Messiah of Psalm 2, the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. There's the gospel. Boom, right there, hidden in the baptism. So get ready for Jesus, Mark's saying. Turn back to God. Receive Jesus. Bow the knee. Be served by him in his suffering to death for us. Really, really briefly in verse 13, Jesus is tested and uh, withstands that test in the wilderness, verses 12 and 13. Adam was tested in a garden and failed. We'll see Jesus tested in a garden later on in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 14, the Garden of Gethsemane. Israel was tested in the wilderness, weren't they? In the desert for 40 years they were tested and, like Adam, they failed the testing and wandered until that whole generation died out in the wilderness. So here is now Jesus, who unlike Adam, failing in the garden, unlike Israel, failing in the wilderness, he in the wilderness for 40 symbolic days, withstands the testing, is proved faithful. And so begins his mission. So then, Jesus' mission, the second big heading. Jesus' mission. Um, Verse 14, he announces it. After John is put in prison, is like a trigger point at which Jesus goes into Galilee and proclaims the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And that just sets us up for everything to come. We've had the intro, now here the story begins. The time has come. This is again the fulfilment. Like we saw this morning, those of you who are here, in the past God spoke to our prophet, through the fathers of the prophets many times, various ways, like through Isaiah like through Elijah, like through Moses, like through Malachi. But in these last days, he's now spoken to us by his son. The time is fulfilled. We're in the last phase of God's purposes. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven, God's rule, his special revelation rule in blessing and salvation and judgment. The time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, near, I think, probably means both it's soon to come in its fullness, it's soon, but also it's nearby because Jesus is the king, right? The king is nearby, he's close, and the kingdom is near, it's soon to dawn. Yeah. So what do you do if the kingdom of God is soon to dawn, if the kingdom of God is right close? Well, you don't stay puffed up with your arms crossed and your eyes rolling, do you? <laughs> um, You don't share an opinion or two of your own at that point, do you? What do you do? You repent, like John was preparing people for. You repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so that's Jesus' gospel. Time has come, now's the time. Repent and believe this great announcement, this good news. The king is here, the saviour king. This is what Jesus is about, bringing his kingdom and unavoidably bound up with bringing the kingdom is announcing it. It's good 
news. It's a message to be pronounced. Yeah? It's a, an announcement. Uh, you might have heard the famous old saying that has a nugget of truth in it. Um, people say, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. They say, you're laughing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny one. There's a kernel of truth in it. What it's trying to say is make sure you be an example. You know, don't be so blah, 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 but then contradict it with your life. You know, you should, be, you should be, have integrity, yeah. However, on another level, it's a nonsense, right? It's, it's like, um, uh, you know, eat food. If necessary, use your mouth <laughs> or something. I don't, I don't know. Respirate. If necessary, use your lungs. It's, it, it's just built up in the concept of preaching. The gospel is a message that has to be said, like we said this morning, that you need the special revelation of God to know God personally and to know how to be saved. So preach the gospel with words and at all times back it up with your actions <laughs> is the truth in the saying, yeah? Um, perhaps coupled with sometimes a few less words and a bit more genuine love will make your gospel preaching effective, neither of which is as catchy as preach the gospel, <laughs> even necessary use words. Uh, I'm not sure it's the most helpful saying, is it? Uh, <laughs> it's announcing the kingdom. It's how the kingdom comes because it is a message of this king and his work it involves proclaiming the good news. You know what another way of translating that is? Evangelising. That's just what evangelising means, proclaiming the good news. That's the point of the famous parable of the sower that takes up Mark chapter 4. We won't look at it for time's sake. I, I assume most of you would be fairly familiar with the farmer who goes with the seed and some on the path and some on the rocky ground and some with the weeds and some on the good soil. And Jesus says this is what the kingdom is like. Now, we know what that means. We, we know the parable. We've heard it perhaps all our lives, some of us. The first hearers, I guess there would have been a bit of a crickets moment, a bit of a tumbleweed moment. You know, now, Everyone's gathered to hear this great Jesus, this miracle worker, this one. Some say John says he's the Messiah. No. They've come to him in so many crowds. He has to be up, not even on a stage, he's on a boat. Um, to just have some distance from the crowd to, to, to be able to address them. And he says, okay, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. So this farmer goes out and he's got some seed and he sows the seed and some of it doesn't work and some of it does. Maybe there's a wolf howl in the distance. Oh! It's like, what? It's called a riddle. What is this riddle, these parables? What does it mean? His disciples have to come up to him later and go, um, Jesus... About the sower thing. <laughs> and then Jesus was, well, okay, let me tell you the secret of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Those on the outside, it's all riddles. But to you, I'll explain it. And then he tells us the explanation. Yeah. <laughs> and central to the explanation is, he says, the Father sows the word. So his big parable in Mark 4, his mysterious riddle is, how does the kingdom come? Not with swords and shields, not with, oh, we were talking about the United Nations before and the Declaration of Human Rights. Not with declarations and diplomatic meetings. and uh, Not with tanks or guns or truces or empires. How does the kingdom of heaven come? With a word. How did Christianity spread through the ancient world so that eventually the Roman Empire toppled before it? 
through the words of Christians preaching and the gospel spreading, as they lived it out too, in, in the, the disease and the poverty of the ancient world. The kingdom comes and dawns as the word comes. A similar thing is said at the start of the book of Acts where they say to Jesus after he's risen, so, is the kingdom coming now, Jesus? And Jesus says, oh, that, look, it's not for you to know all the details, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. That's what you need to know about my kingdom. Go preach. How does his kingdom come? By a word, by proclaiming about Christ. And so this priority of the word is seen even at the end of Mark's gospel. Jesus has miraculous power. Of course, this attracts many people to come him to uh, have him show mercy to them. But notice verse 35 of chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companion went to look for him and when they found him they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you, meaning more people want to be healed and and helped by you. And Jesus replied, interestingly, verse 38, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. And so he went throughout the villages. Yes, healing, but preaching. Interesting. Yes, he had miraculous power. It did incredible good. But there were many in need Jesus never healed throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He, he didn't go through and empty every hospital. He did good, but it was a symbolic good of a greater good. His healings and his exorcisms were a taste of the great good that Isaiah and the Malachi were talking about when the kingdom dawns and God wipes away every tear from every eye where there's no more death and mourning and suffering and pain for this old order is done away with but we can be welcomed into it forgiven and renewed as the subjects of the kingdom. And so for us here, those of us who are on campus studying, well, on campus in your bedroom, studying online as well. Um, those of you who may be doing uh, studying through other universities, TAFEs, working, gap years, school, whatever it is you're up to. Um, one of the things that you, when you're a member of a group like Uni Fellowship or a church like Wellspring, with their lousy microphones, or uh, <laughs> um, uh, or, or your, your, your lunchtime Bible study or your city Bible forum, One thing that uniquely as Christians we have in common, uniquely that only Christians can do, is preach the message of Jesus. That's our core identity as God's people on a mission is to preach the gospel. We do good in any number of ways and we ought to do good in any number of ways, yes. But a central mission for God's people as God's people, the saving mission of God, the special revelation mission of God, is making disciples, is preaching the news of the kingdom, is evangelism. And so Jesus calls his disciples, linked with his preaching, is others joining in the preaching. He calls people to repent and believe the good news, the disciples, and so he calls them to join in the preaching and proclaiming of the good news. 1 verses 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So they left their nets and followed him. Come join me as we, like fishermen, 
fish people out of the judgment of God into the kingdom of God. 2 verses 13 and 14, as he calls Matthew, Levi, as he's called here, the tax collector. 3 verses 13 to 19, the calling of the twelve, uh, who to be with him and, and to be his apostles, the sent ones, sent out to preach, 3 verse 14 and 15. They are Jesus' family, 3 verse 31. Look at that, Jesus' mothers and brother arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call Jesus. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, 3 verse 32, um, and they told him, your mother and brothers, they're outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He's calling his disciples, he's calling his special 12 apostles, but any of those who come and listen, sit and learn and listen, to God's will as he teaches it about his kingdom, are his family sharing in the family business of preaching the message. They're the ones who have the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. As I said before, 4 verse 10, when the twelve come and ask him about the parable, the riddle, and he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to, to you. You have the secret now. Go and proclaim. That's us to some extent or another. All of God's people share together in that work in some way or another. God has made us disciples. Disciples are involved in making disciples in the work of the kingdom. That's how Mark's Gospel sets us up for everything to come. And then these first four chapters, it unpacks these themes, we just touched on it, haven't we, with a particular focus on Jesus' authority, authority to heal, authority to tell demons what to do, authority to forgive sins like God can, authority to proclaim someone clean where priests can just um, look at someone and say, oh, unclean, clean. All All they can do is just say what is. Jesus can declare what should be. He has authority, authority over fishermen. Come, follow me. Talks about Jesus' authority again and again. Talks about Jesus bringing a new thing. Jesus brings a new thing. Uh, we'll see for that, for example, I mean, there's the, the forgiveness, but you see it uh, in these little um, bits in chapter 2, there's these little dramas, right? He's bringing a new thing where instead of saying there's good guys and bad guys, instead, 2 verse 17, Jesus said, not the healthy who need the doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. He brings a new thing where he's interested in bringing those who are, who've made, done the wrong, who are guilty and ashamed and rightfully so, who are then excluded and condemned, often wrongly so, and he's interested in healing them. He comes to bring a new thing. When he's questioned about religious ceremonies, fasting uh, out of grief for sin, Um, Jesus says, I'm not one who's in the business of grieving, rather I'm in the business of feasting. 2 verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom, that is my followers, I'm I'm like God's uh, great groom coming to bring the the divine marriage of God with his people, how can the bridegroom, the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Now's the time for feasting. Yes, when I die there's a time for fasting, but even then I'll rise again. Now is the new time. The kingdom is coming. Time for a party. 
where everyone is welcome, even the wrongdoers and the shameful and the embarrassed and the guilty and the beyond society. He comes to bring a new thing, verse 21 of chapter 2, where you don't sew unshrunk cloth on an old garment that would ruin everything. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. It would ruin everything. No, this is new. It's a new thing. It's new cloth for new clothes. It's new wine for new wineskins. That stuff that you've been spending all day slaving away from in the Old Testament needs to be seen in its fulfilment. You don't go back to rebuilding the Old Testament temple and the hides of sea cows and the fine linens and the, 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 the carrying poles to carry the, the tabernacle. You don't go back to all of that. You don't go back to all the feasts and ceremonies and stuff, the dietary laws. No, no, that's the old stuff that is now being fulfilled in the new. Jesus brings a new thing. He has authority to bring a new thing and man, that generates conflict. That's the final theme. We'll pick that up more tomorrow. But we begin to see, towards the end of this section especially, scandal. People aren't happy with what they're seeing with this Jesus. 2 verse 6, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? People are scandalised by this having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. 2 verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? Scandal! He's not fasting when everyone else says you're supposed to fast. 2 verse um, 18, and he's not obeying the Sabbath the way we think it ought to be obeyed in this section that goes from chapter uh, 2 right through into chapter 3. It ends really bizarrely, ironically, in 3 verse 6. They're so scandalised that Jesus said it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. They're so shocked by this. How dare he do good on the Sabbath by doing the work of a miracle? <laughs> you know, a miracle, surely that's billable hours, right? Um, surely you're on the clock if you're working miracles. He heals somebody. Like they, They'll rescue their animal that works for them if it falls into a pit, but don't heal this person. I could come back another day to get healed. You know, they're shocked by this. On the Sabbath, you understand. How, how could he possibly? So on the Sabbath, <laughs> they begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. <laughs> 3 verse 6. It's, it's, it's just damnably ironic, isn't it? It's like, okay, we've got to stop this guy doing good things on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, let's talk with the Roman sympathisers about killing the Messiah. Way to go, guys. <laughs> I think I need to go away and rethink my life. (laughs) It brings conflict. It brings conflict. There's there's trouble to come. Uh, If we're to follow Jesus and submit to his authority and benefit from the new work that he brings about, we'll need to be ready to face conflict and opposition when it comes. Conflict that ultimately in Mark's story, where does it lead? Well, to the cross. Again, we're foreshadowing the cross. How does he, he talks about the, uh, the raiding of the house of the strong man, the devil, to rescue those enslaved by the devil. How does he do it? Well, it's by the cross. The conflict leads to that great moment of betrayal and assault and, and murder and defiance and godlessness that is also the moment of his coronation 
of his triumph, of the fulfilment of his kingdom, of his ransacking of the devil's house. In that wonderful divine flip, the very opposition brings about the kingdom. He's the Messiah, but then he dies. But then that's how he becomes the Messiah. (gasps) And it's the wisdom of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. It's the power of God in God's foolishness, in God's weakness. We see God's wisdom greater than human wisdom. God's power greater than human might. The secret of the kingdom of heaven. That you don't get that to those on the outside it's all a riddle about farmers and sowers and it's not all quite clear. The glory of the kingdom of heaven is that here is how God shows his justice and his mercy, his truth and his beauty, his purposes and his plans. Here in his son come to earth serving us to death, rising and reigning as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his gospel, Mark says. Wilbur said we should assume everyone here has accepted Jesus as king. Should we? Have you? Wouldn't it be awesome if you hadn't and tonight's the night that you did? You can grow up in church, you can go to church, you can be Christian to various extents or another, but just as the way is not about highways and valleys, it's about the heart, it's the same with Jesus' kingdom. Actually entering the kingdom, it's not about going to conferences or you know, doing a Bible reading plan or whatever. Yeah? It's about the heart. Have I repented and believed the good news? Have I in my heart, bowed the knee to Jesus? Have I taken off the little aluminium foil crown that I wear on my own head and laid it at his feet, the king of the universe? (laughs) Have I recognised that he's the one who died for my sins, that he's the Lord of my life? Have you? Are you a subject of the kingdom, a servant of the king, Have you let him serve you by forgiving you all your sins? I I hope you all are. And you're there in your hearts going, yeah, and amen. Thank you. Um, But if you haven't, wouldn't it be awesome if tonight was that night when you said, yeah, I've I've got it personally myself. Uh, My heart. Prepare the way for the Lord. Repent and believe the good news. And if you are, obey him, worship him, serve him, love like he loves, be prepared for conflict as he faced. But also, speak. Pray. I mean, it's so nice to just think about that, to pray for opportunities. God, please let someone ask me this week, have you got a book on that? (laughs) And if you don't have a book, Mark's Gospel is one of them, isn't it? I know a good book. We could read Mark's Gospel together. Yeah, you could pray for that opportunity. Mean, it's so good to just hear those stories and spend some time thinking about that. Yeah, again, it looks different for each of us. Some of us are more talky. Some of us are less talky. How we do it is different. Some of us have all the answers. Some of us are friends with the person who has all the answers. <laughs> um, some of us just have our story. In John's Gospel, there's a there's a guy who's blind. Jesus heals him again. The Pharisees get scandalised by this. What are you doing helping a guy who's been blind all his life see? On the Sabbath, no less. Um, and, 
at, at, at various points, he gets more and more sassy as the story goes on in John 8. And, and at, one point, you know, at one point, he goes, why are you asking me all these questions about Jesus? Do you want to become his disciple? <laughs> uh, but another point, he says, just simply this, look, I don't know, I don't know, enough. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I can see. Well, that's a pretty good testimony too, isn't it? I don't know all the answers. I can't keep up with all the blog posts you keep sending me. Um, but one thing I do know, spiritually I once was blind and now I see. I was a sinner. Jesus is my saviour. I was dead. He made me alive. We can all at least share that kind of testimony, can't we? Yeah? Bow the knee to Jesus. And if you have a heart with your belief, then with your mouth you speak. Pray that God will give you some opportunities to stand for Jesus, speak for Jesus, um, share something of him. I'll pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in your Son. We confess before you of the wrong things we think and say and do, the good things we don't do, uh, the, the false desires and ambitions and grouches that we hold on to, get pleasure from. We confess to you we often don't praise you and thank you the way we should. Forgive us, we pray. Because of Christ's death for our sins, forgive us. Move our hearts to repent and believe and give us opportunities, even today, even this week, to speak for Jesus too and to share this good thing, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In his name we pray. Amen.